Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are writing saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. From then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. What motivates the Christian life? If you were to ask different religions uh, what motivates their spiritual lives, you would get a range of different answers, wouldn't you? So, for example, if you were to ask a Muslim what motivates their spiritual life, they would probably say duty or submission to Allah. If you were to ask a Catholic uh, what motivates their spiritual life, they might say a desire to minimize their time in purgatory so that they can enter heaven as soon as possible after death. But what motivates a Christian? That is someone who has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's a question we come to this morning, and it was a, a question that came up during the time of the Reformation, when those great truths of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, were rediscovered and taught. And one of the major criticisms that people made from, about these reformers who were bringing these, these, these Bible truths out, particularly from the Catholic Church, the criticism was that if you taught and believed those things then what motivates people to live in the way that God wants us to live? Surely people would go and live immoral lives, having very little interest in church and the things of God, because, they said, if forgiveness before the God of heaven is a gift, and if eternal life is received by grace through faith in Jesus and not by what we do, then why will people care anymore about how they live. Where's the motivation for holiness? Where's the motivation for service? So were they right or were they wrong? What is the motivation? That's our question this morning. And it's a key question that we come to because we are working through what we call our church covenant as a church family. If you want a copy of one of these, they're on the table, the welcome table on the way in. And as we've worked through this document over the last few weeks, we have seen uh, that it highlights lots of things that the Bible calls us to do. 
There's lots of imperatives and lots of actions for us to do, aren't there? So we've thought about that we are called to glorify God in all of life. We are called to maintain a consistent Christian testimony in all of life. We are called to submit to our national leaders and our church leaders. We thought about our obligation to make Christ known to those around us. And then we're calling to each play our part in serving in the church, using our gifts for the glory of God. So we have been talking about lots and lots of doing over the last few weeks as we have worked through the church covenants. But what gives us the strength and the motivation for all that doing? And that's what we come to as we begin the final section in the church covenant that reminds us that our love for God and our love for each other are the two greatest commandments and they motivate everything we do. The section we're going to look at this week reads, we acknowledge the two greatest commandments to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves as we respond to the boundless love God has demonstrated for us in Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to focus upon that first part of the statement there, where we're called to love God as our greatest priority. Where we're called to love God as our greatest priority. And we're going to do that by looking at the passage quoted in the Members' Covenant, which is Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34, the one that Tim read for us earlier. Now, just to set the background here, in this passage, a religious teacher comes to Jesus and asks him a great question. And the reason it's so helpful is that when Jesus answers this question, we learn why loving God is the greatest commandment and why it should motivate all that we do in our lives. So let's work through this passage by seeing, first of all, that it begins with a great question. This conversation between Jesus and this teacher happens in the final week of Jesus' life. And it's in the middle of his last conflict, public conflict with the religious teachers. But what stands out about this little section is it doesn't follow the pattern of what has come before. Because in the lead up to this, there has been a pattern of confrontation. And the pattern is there because the Lord Jesus has entered Jerusalem as king and has declared his kingship by coming into the temple, the house of God, and cleansing it of the money changers and the traders who had turned it into a marketplace. So he'd come and he declared his kingship in how he'd entered and he declared his kingship in what he did. And in response to his actions, the religious teachers bring a number of questions to challenge the Lord Jesus. Maybe you've been uh, following some of the different party conferences over the last few weeks. And in the various uh, interviews that different leaders uh, have been put through, you've seen journalists throwing questions at politicians trying to trip them up. And that's a bit like what goes on here in this passage, that the Jewish leaders are firing hard questions at Jesus to try and catch him out because they don't like what he's doing and they don't like what he's saying because he is challenging their authority. And so there's challenges about uh, the Lord. They try and ask Jesus questions about his authority to try and get him to speak against the Lord God. They ask him questions about paying taxes 
to try and get him to challenge the rule of the Romans. And they ask him questions about marriage, about after the resurrection, to try and tie him in knots to a theological riddle. So you get all this pattern of hard questions trying to catch the Lord Jesus out. But then, in verse 28, there's a shift. Because whilst all those questions before were trying to trick Jesus, this one appears genuine. Because you read in verse 28 that this man has been struck by how good and wise the Lord Jesus' answers have been to this point. And so he brings to Jesus not a trick question, but a great question. And it's a question that should concern us all today. It's there in verse 28. He says to him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, what is he asking? What he is asking is for the Lord Jesus to tell him what is the center of God's law. Because he wants to know the heart of what God requires of him. That's his question. And and many of the Jewish teachers of the law had tried to answer that question already. About about 20 years before Jesus was alive uh, on earth, came to earth, I should say, Rabbi Hillel had summarized the law in a negative way, saying, what you would not want done to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the entire Torah, the law. Everything else is just interpretation. So this is a key question that they wrestled with. It was focusing on a key issue. What does God require of me? But friends, as you hear this, don't think that this is just a historically interesting interaction. Because although it was asked over 2,000 years ago, this question is incredibly relevant today. Because everyone who is interested in faith is asking that question. I know that God is there, but what does he want from me? What is my right response to the God of heaven and earth? And perhaps, like this man, you have been intrigued by the teaching of Jesus. And you want to know what is at the heart of his message and what is central to the teaching of the Bible. And so for that reason, this is a great question for us all to think about today. What does God require of us? Whether you're a Christian and we're thinking about motivation for the Christian life or whether you want to find out more about the Christian faith, it's a great question. And in response to it, Jesus gives to him a great answer. We find that in verses 29 to 31, where Jesus masterfully brings together two things that God has already said in the Old Testament that takes us to the heart of what God requires. And what unites his answer is a call to love. Read with me from verse 29. The most important one Jesus answered is this. Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your hearts and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now what Jesus does there is he takes something God has said in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 and 5 which is known as the Shema. It's a a phrase spoken by Orthodox Jews twice every day, 
even now, where they say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and then you have that call to love God with all of your being. And then the second part that Jesus comes to, which is there for us in verse 31, is from Leviticus 19, verse 18. And that comes from a list of commandments about how to relate to others. Now, why is this such an amazing answer? Well, having stated the greatness and authority of the Lord God, that's here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Ron, he alone is God, Jesus' answer is amazing because, first of all, it summarizes all of God's law perfectly. Those two quotations from the Old Testament summarize the Ten Commandments that God gave in the Old Testament. Because loving God was at the heart of the first four commandments that express our duty towards God. Where we're called to have no other gods before the Lord God, to not worship idols, to treat God's name rightly and to keep the Lord's day special. So the first part of what Jesus says in that quotation from Deuteronomy, that gets to the heart of the first four commandments, to love God. But then the second half of what Jesus says, to love your neighbor as yourself, gets us to the heart of the remaining six commandments, which express our duty towards each other, to honor our father and mother, to not murder, to not uh, commit adultery or steal, to always speak the truth, and to not desire what doesn't belong to us. So Jesus' answer summarizes the Ten Commandments. But it does more than that. It summarizes all the commandments that God gave in the Old Testament. Because all of those commandments elsewhere in the Old Testament were an outworking of those ten commandments as applied to the life of the Israelites. So this is a great answer because it summarizes all of God's law in just two statements, united by a simple call to love God and to love others. But it's also a great answer because it calls us to more than mere obedience. It calls us to more than mere obedience. A serious error of the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day was that they thought the law was just about outward obedience. So as long as you kept the commandments, even if you did that from a reluctant heart, that was okay because you kept the commandments. Think back to that summary offered by Rabbi Hillel. What you would not want done to you, do not do to your neighbor. What's the key word in there? Do. 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 For him, what God required was just actions. But notice here that Jesus' summarizing of the law points to something much more than action. Jesus says the law is not just about action, it's about love. It's a matter of mind and heart and the inner person which is unexpressed in our actions. And this is where other religions get it so wrong. Because God is not looking for mere submission. God is not looking for obedience because you're trying to avoid or minimize your punishment for sin. God is looking for love from the heart. God desires that we would have a life that is totally devoted to him, that loves him deeply and obeys him sincerely in everything. 
Which then brings us to the third reason why this is such a great answer. Because it shows us the breadth of love that God requires of us. Did you notice there the spheres in which Jesus said we are to love the Lord our God? He spoke of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Now remember, Jesus is quoting here from the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now if you jump back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, you'll notice something interesting. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, we read this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. What's the difference? Well, Jesus talked about four areas to love God. And the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 talks about three areas. Now, people get quite excited about this um, because they think that maybe um, there's a mistake here. But I don't think that's what's going on. Actually, what I think is going on is that Jesus adds mind, probably because he's quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which includes a reference to the mind to emphasize the fullness of what God is looking for in this love. He's looking for this fullness of love, this breadth of love. So if we stick with the three in Deuteronomy 6, we hear about three areas, heart, soul, and strength. Now, When you think of those areas, I wonder, what do you think of? For a long time, I thought they were three distinct areas of my personality and my life. And so Jesus is saying, you need to love me here, you need to love me here, and you need to love me here. And maybe the heart was about my affections alone, the strength, sorry, the soul, perhaps about my Um, spiritual life and my strength, well, maybe something else too. But actually, in the Bible, those are not separate areas of you. They are expanding circles of who you are. And we see this. I think it's incredibly helpful to see the, 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 the breadth of what Jesus is calling us to hear. You see, when the Bible speaks about the heart... It is speaking about the control center of who you are. When we speak about the heart, we tend to just be thinking about our emotions. So we might say, well, well, I, I know that um, I should do this in my head, but in my heart, I want to do this. And we mean our emotions perhaps are leading us one way, and our thinking is leading us another way. But that is not how the Bible thinks about your heart. That is not how the Bible speaks about your heart. The heart is the center of your whole person. It is the command center of a human being. It is your thinking and your will and your emotions. It's all there in your heart. It's the center of who you are. There is no separate word for your mind in Hebrew. The heart includes your mind. Because your heart isn't just a place of your emotions, it's a control center of the human personality, which is why we read, for example, in, in Proverbs 4, verse 23, above all else, guard your heart, for everything flows from it. It's the control center of who you are. That's the center. But then Jesus then starts to speak about your soul, and that's the next 
concentric circle as we expand out, because here your soul is referring to your whole person. Now that includes your heart, but it adds in your body and what you do with your body. So you might say that your soul is all that you are. It's your inner life as well as your outward actions. And then the final circle is the biggest because Jesus, sorry, in Deuteronomy 6 we read and Jesus says, your strength. Now your strength is everything you're responsible for in life. It's everything you have influence over, everything you can affect. So if you put that together and see the breadth of what Jesus is speaking of here, maybe this diagram will help us because the heart is a center of who we are. It's a control center of the person. The soul is that plus all of our bodies. And the strength goes further beyond that. It's from the heart to our bodies to everything that we have control over. Now, as we see this, we begin to understand the meaning of each of these spheres. And what becomes clear is that God is calling us to love him with great breadth. He's calling us to love him with all that we are and all that we have. He wants us to love him from our hearts, the center of our person, in our minds and our wills and emotions. He wants us to love him with all of our person, with all of our body. And he wants us to love him with everything that we are responsible for. So this is a call to love God with every aspect of our inner life and our outer life. But notice alongside that, not just uh, the breadth of this, in terms of the spheres, notice the scope that we are to love God in each of those spheres. Because there is a repeated word for us in verse 30. And what is it? Three letters. All. Not some, not parts, but all. Friends, when we see the breadth of this command, we realize it is not a simple tick box exercise to say that you are offering what God requires of you. It's a huge thing. And this young man recognizes the wisdom of Jesus' reply when he says, verse 32, well said, teacher. Now you can read that in a number of ways, can't you? You could read it as a put down, but that's not what's going on here. It's not a put-down. It's an affirmation that Christ has spoken well. Because this teacher of the law grasped something that few of the Jewish leaders had grasped. That a fully devoted life is at the essence of all God's commandments. Which is why he then says in verse 33, that is more than sacrifices and offerings. The scribe grasped that because he knew that if you truly loved God, then there would be no need for sacrifices and offerings because there would be no need for atonement because there would be no sin. Indeed, a fully devoted life was what God was asking Adam and Eve to offer him in the Garden of Eden. Before sin was in the world, before there was a need for sacrifice, he was calling them to offer that fully devoted life. That command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there to test if they could offer that fully devoted life. 
but they broke it, didn't they? That single command. And when they did that, they failed to love God with all of their hearts. Why? Because they believed the lies of the devil in their minds. In their wills, they desired something that wasn't given to them. And in their hearts, they loved something more than God in their affections. They failed to love God in their hearts, but they also failed to love God with their souls. How? Because with their bodies, they took the fruit and they ate it. And they failed to love God with their strength, all the sphere with over which they had influence, because in doing that, they, they gave over their air of responsibility, the garden. They gave it over to the serpent when they had been called to steward it and care for it. So the heart of Adam and Eve's sin was a failure to love God. And friends, can I just point this out? That if loving God is the greatest commandment, as Jesus says here, then to not love God rightly must be the greatest sin. Too many people think that sin is only about what we do. As long as I'm not doing too much wrong, as long as I'm faithful to my spouse and I'm honest with my tax return and I don't fiddle the expenses claim, I've not done too much wrong. And as long as I keep on trying my best, I come to church, I give to charity, I'm kind to others, we think we're okay. What is Christ exposing here? Friends, he is telling us that it's far more than that. That sin is far deeper than that. And if you think sin is just about doing good and avoiding doing wrong, then you have misunderstood the Bible. Because if you have failed to love God with all that you are in every moment of your life, then you have failed to keep this commandment. So what should we do, friends? What should our response to this be? Well, if this is the greatest sin and we have all failed to keep this command, then what do we need to do? We need to turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Because every one of God's commandments, including this greatest command, is there to show you your sin and to send you to the cross where you come and you cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me that I haven't loved you with all my heart, soul, mind and strength. Forgive me that I haven't lived for you and for you alone, that I haven't loved you as I should, but I've loved other things. And then, friends, you know what you find? You find that God delights to forgive those who come and ask him. You find that Christ has come to pay for our sins you find that Christ has died for those who repent and believe so that we can know God, not through obedience, but by grace, through faith in Christ alone. That's what seeing this commandment should do for us. It should drive us to Christ to trust in him by faith. So Jesus is asked a great question. Jesus gives a great answer that exposes our hearts as we see the true nature of sin. But then, friends, would you agree that this encounter ends with a great tragedy? In verse 34, Jesus says something about this man 
that the Lord Jesus says about very few people. Do you notice his words there? You are not far from the kingdom of God. What a commendation from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is close to the kingdom. He is nearly there. But then what a tragedy that he doesn't go any further. We read there, end of verse 34, from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I don't know about you, there are many sad things in Scripture, but one of the saddest things I find in Scripture is when people get so close and walk away. When people get so close to the kingdom and walk away, this man comes to the edge of the kingdom of God. If we're thinking physically, he's there on the border and he's one step from entering it, but he doesn't go in. He almost knows the blessing of forgiveness and a clear conscience. He almost knows the blessing and joy of eternal life. But he doesn't enter in because he fails to respond to what Christ has just shown him about the true nature of sin. He doesn't, as far as we know, fall down and seek mercy from Christ because he has just seen how much he is a sinner. He doesn't respond to what he has seen. And so, friends, can I beg you? Can I plead with you not to make the same mistake that this man does? Some of you are here and you are just like this man because you are almost in the kingdom of God, but you're not in. Maybe you feel the weight of your sin this morning. Maybe as we've looked at this greatest commandment, you have felt the Spirit of God convicting in your heart and it feels like you have this heavy burden on your shoulders. Don't leave it there. Come to Christ. Trust him by faith. Don't be content just to be close. It's a great thing to be close. But make sure you're in the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus. Perhaps perhaps you've been taught about the Lord from a young age. Maybe your parents have sat down with you and opened the Bible and explained about the Lord Jesus. And again and again, you have come Sunday after Sunday. And again and again, you have heard God's truth. And you are close to the kingdom of God. But you're not yet in because you haven't trusted Christ by faith. Don't be content to be close. Be in the kingdom. Or maybe you've been coming to church for some time and you're intrigued by the Lord Jesus. But you've not responded in faith. Don't be content to be close. Make sure that you are in the kingdom of God. Do not make the same mistake as this man. Enter by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But once you've done that, and if you have this morning, does that mean this commandment is redundant? No, not at all. But the way we respond to it changes. 
Because we recognize, having seen our sin, that we cannot offer the devoted life that God requires. And instead, we come to see that Christ has come to do that for us. He was the only human who could ever say that he loved God with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength. He was the only one who did that. And so we rejoice in looking to Jesus that all that God requires of us has been provided in the Lord Jesus. This is what it means when we say that Christ has kept God's commandments for us. That he has met the standard. He has done all of that. And we rejoice that he has done that. And not only that, he has come to die for all of the times that we have failed to keep the commandments. So that our sins are washed away in his blood. So we come rejoicing in his perfect life. We come rejoicing in his death. And that's what we remember today around the Lord's Supper. That our Savior gave himself for us. But then, having known that great love of God in Christ, we then want to keep this commandment. Not because we're going to earn eternal life, Not because we think we can meet the standard, because we know we can't, but because we love him and we want to serve him. Obeying this commandment then becomes a joy and a privilege. It doesn't become the means by which we enter the kingdom, because we come in by faith. And nor does it become the means by which we stay in the kingdom, because we stay in by the work of Jesus and what he has done. But it becomes the glad and happy response of our hearts to God's love in Jesus Christ. And that's the motivation, friends. All that God has done for us in Christ. Not to earn it, but to receive it by grace and respond to his love with our love. And that then becomes our motivation for why we serve the Lord. That then becomes our motivation for why we serve each other. Because love for God in response to all that he has done in Christ, fuels our life of service. Some of you will know that I'm a, um, a bit of a detail guy, and I like to check things out in detail. And one of the details I like to track in our lives is our fuel consumption on the car, so that we can just lighten off our heavy foot, right-hand foot on the accelerator. So one of the things I do is, um, and it uh, somewhat frustrates my wife, is I like to run the car right to empty and then fill it up. Now, as Naomi reminds me, that's a risky way to drive because sometimes you can run out of fuel. Could it be, friends, that we're doing something similar in our service for the Lord in the church. That we're running on empty, that we're not filling up the tank with the fuel. And so we're getting closer and closer to running out. What do we need to do? We need to reflect on the boundless love of God in Christ. We need to go back to the cross, remembering what our Savior has done. And maybe as we've been working through this series on the church covenant, perhaps what God has been challenging you about is not that you need to serve more, 
because you are fully committed, serving very sacrificial life of the church. But maybe what you need to do is to think afresh about why you serve. We know that there are many at Emmanuel who serve sacrificially in the life of the church. But perhaps what you need to do is hit refresh on your motivation for service. Because it doesn't come out of duty. It comes out of response to God's love. And it flows from a heart of love. Some of you will know that um, I like to take notes in a notebook like this. Still think pen and paper's worth something. And at the front of my notebook, there's a page that I never used until this week, except for one thing. It's called Objectives. And all I did in this page was I wrote the start of the notebook and the end of the notebook, and otherwise left it blank and got on with filling the notebook. But this week, yesterday, I wrote something. To grow in obeying the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love my neighbor as myself, as I respond to the boundless love God has demonstrated for me in Christ. Friends, are you doing what I've been doing? Getting on with the work, but forgetting the motivation. We serve because we love him. And we love him because he first loved us.